Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle the Buddhist Review. As editor of a Buddhist magazine, I frequently encounter arguments about whether or not Buddhism is a religion, or a religion in the regular sense of the word. My opinion aside, it's a discussion that rests on the idea that religion can be easily defined. One realm of activity among other realms of activity. But where in fact did this common sense understanding of religion come from? My guest today is Professor Jack Miles, a scholar of religion and author of Religion as We Know It, an origin story, which came out last year. His book, God, a Biography, won the Pulitzer Prize in 1996. Jack is also general editor of the Norton Anthology of World Religions and a professor emeritus of English and Religious Studies at the University of California, Irvine. In this episode, I speak to Jack about the historical factors that led to our contemporary understanding of religion. We also discuss the useful fictions that religion may contain, his own religious explorations, and practice versus belief. Jack Miles, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure, James. So I want to start with the title of the book, Religion as We Know It, an Origin Story. Could you first talk about what you mean by as we know it? I mean religion in the common sense way that the average American uses the word. So this isn't an attempt to go back to prehistory or primitive man or tribal behaviors. It's just the everyday common sense way that Americans use the word. Can you say something about how we use it and what's unusual about that historically? Actually, uh, you go back to Christianity Mm -hmm. to discuss the understanding of religion that we have today. Can you say something about that? The common sense American, and I believe this is by and large the common sense European and general Western understanding of religion, is that it is one domain of human activity alongside other domains that we might mention such as business, art, science, sports, even warfare, private life. Historically, this idea came about when Christianity disembedded a set of religious ideas from the overall Jewish way of life and said, in effect, you don't have to be Jewish to adopt the Jewish sense of morality, the Jewish idea of the afterlife, reward and punishment for sin, and a set of other ideas, all of which were distinctive to Judaism. And as they became a missionary religion, certainly not the world's first missionary religion, but they started spreading their ideas throughout the Roman Empire and throughout the Persian Empire. And the message was, you can adopt these ideas and live by them without ceasing to be Roman, without ceasing to be Persian without ceasing to be Armenian or the various other nationalities that step-by-step began to adopt this religion. But as they adopted it, they were adopting the very idea of religion as something that was separate. Until that point, religion had been embedded for all of them inseparably in their respective national or local ways of life. And later on, as this had become normalized throughout Europe and European explorers, traders, eventually missionaries, began to spread back out into the Middle East and especially into the New World and then around Africa into Asia, they encountered 
countries where religion was embedded in the same way that it had originally been embedded in, in Judaism. But what they saw, they then interpreted in their own terms. So they were looking for something that would be detached, and they found it. And so uh, we began to get the notion of a set of world religions, each understood in this Western way of putting religion together as uh, separate from being Chinese, from being Indian, uh, from being Brazilian, what have you. Nowadays, there is beginning to be a move backward toward the earlier, more embedded understanding of religion. But by and large, the older, originally Christian way of understanding religion is now secularized and normalized. And uh, it's alive and well in India. It's alive and well in Korea. But in various places, it lives on. So in other words, others adopted this notion later or eventually of religion as something separable. In other words, we didn't have a Hinduism or a Buddhism until Westerners began calling it as such. Is that right? That's right. Everything that is now still being done that has ancient roots was being done then. But for the people who did those things, and I do tend to think of religion as a practice more than a belief, the practice was not separable from any of the other practices that they engaged in. Right. So for the purposes of the Norton Anthology of Religions, you took this as a convenience or because it was our common sense understanding of religion? How did you make that decision? I made that decision because I understood that the Norton Anthology of Religion was going to have an overwhelmingly American audience. And uh, that if, if I tried to come up with a definition of religion that would comprehend this history and try to produce a late arriving new revised definition of religion, I wasn't confident that I could even sell it to my six brilliant associate editors. <laughs> so, uh, so I just uh, decided that instead I would tell the story of how the common sense American understanding of uh, religion arose and point out to people that there were other ways of, of doing this. You know, one, one consequence of this way, this Christian way of understanding religion, is that it gives you the notion of something that you join. You know, you join, you're a church, you belong to this church. So, uh, you know, I belong to the Catholic Church, but I'm an American. Or I belong to the Catholic Church, but I'm French. But you separate the religion and nationality. But one reason why I believe Buddhism is undercounted in China is that Chinese Buddhists don't think they belong to a Buddhist church, by and large. They may do certain Buddhist things, very important ones, even precious to them, well-developed practices, but they don't understand this as bringing with it a clear affiliation. They couldn't be kicked out or initiated into it in the same way that is so standard in uh, Christianity. Another, of course, consequence of this way of, of making religion something separate is that it creates secularism. Secularism is everything that isn't religion. But if you've never separated religion out in the first place, then in a way, everything is secular, everything is religious. The two are in a, a kind of um, soup in which you can't separate the salt from the pepper. So you mentioned practice for other cultures until this notion of religion became prevalent it was simply a matter of what they practiced. And when you made a decision for the Norton Anthology of Religions to focus on texts and practice, why did you make that decision? You say in the book, 
religion is as religion does. Maybe you could explain that. There are, uh, of course, abroad in our American world, understandings of religion that uh, see it as something like testimony that one gives under oath in court. Uh, These are the truths that I believe, just as if I had witnessed an automobile accident and telling you what really happened during the accident that day. It's in this way that people believe in, for example, the literal creation of the world in six days. That's one way of understanding how belief can function within a religious community. But there's another way, and that way is linked to such practices as in a Jewish synagogue, singing, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Or the act of fantastic memorization of the Rig Veda by Hindu Brahmins. It's a fabulous feat on their part, and it isn't as if the Vedas don't say things, don't express views about the world, but the act of memorization is what gives them status as a practice. And there are many other examples of this. When words expressing ideas are sung or danced, I have as a wedding gift from an Arab friend I have Alhamdulillah, you know, which is thanks be to God in Arabic, done in this very ornate Kufic script. But on the vertical banner that was the gift, this standard pious Muslim phrase appears first time right side up, then turn to the right, then turn to the bottom, then turn to the left, then turn right side up again at the bottom. So it's as if this expression is dancing up and down that flag. So in these ways, belief can be turned into practice. And I believe that unless this happens, the beliefs become something like quaint fairy tales, you know, that were once told and uh, no one bothers with them anymore, which is in general, of course, how the secular West regards all religion, children's stories, because they're, they're taking them as if they were courtroom testimony and they're finding them so wanting. You talk also then of useful fictions. Do you want to say something about that? You might also want to say, how is it that we came to start looking at religion as literal truth and begin to value it according to whether it proved to be true or not? Well, uh, I'll start with useful fictions and then I'll I'll try to double back uh, to the story. I give an example of what I consider a familiar American useful fiction. This fiction's penned by Thomas Jefferson in the American Declaration of Independence, that we believe these truths are self-evident that all men are created equal. Well, you can begin correcting that immediately by saying only men or men and women. If you make that correction, you might then go on to secularize it and say all men and women are born equal. But the real problem word is equal, because obviously we aren't born equal. Some of us are born healthy. Some of us are born ailing from our uh, first day. Some of us are born into wealthy families, some into poor families. Some are born with a once in a century athletic ability and others are born crippled. These differences are, are real. And Britain, at the time that the United States declared its uh, independence, believed in hereditary aristocracy. 
Some people were clearly born superior to other people. The United States of America, by taking that fiction that all men are created equal and trying to organize a society around it, created a very distinct society. So the fiction had consequences. You might not like the consequences, but for those who do like the consequences, this was a very useful fiction. It was this fiction that Martin Luther King, of course, was able to elevate and uh, turn into a rallying cry that, uh, that ended segregation in the South and began to overcome the heritage of slavery. And there are various other fictions that can be useful in the same way. The fiction of multiple births is one. Whether you believe in reincarnation or not, it is a belief that has consequences. They can be moral consequences. They can be life-shaping consequences. There are others like that. The reason why religions seem in such trouble now because of beliefs they hold that while they might be useful fictions to somebody are still fictions, I believe dates back uh, to uh, the rise of natural science. And at that time, the fact that the inherited scriptures and the inherited thinking mingled not just religion and science as we would now understand them, but religion and history and religion and art and religion and uh, call it grandfatherly advice, practical wisdom, a gentle answer turneth away wrath, for example. All these things were mingled. But the expectation began to grow up that if religious texts were going to say things about the world, those things had to conform with science, otherwise they were going to be invalid. That's how religions began to uh, happen into trouble. And the great mistake that many religious leaders have made is to try to defend their religious texts as if they were science, when that's a fool's errand. They're not science. They have to be defended in another way. Yeah, you mentioned allegory, and it was the Protestant tendency not to read it as allegory, but try to find in it earlier on in the study of religion some kind of historical truth. And not finding that, it was a disappointment or it diminished its value. You also say something about fiction itself, fiction writing. It's interesting. We don't dismiss fiction as an art simply because it isn't true. That's right. So you talk a lot about fiction and its similarity to religious texts. Well, what, what I single out in our modern way of talking about fiction is our very revealing expression, serious fiction. So we're, we're making a distinction between serious fiction and trivial fiction. Trivial fiction is for, what, idle entertainment, a mere distraction. Serious fiction is fiction that is trying to say something to you about how you're living your life or how your society is living its collective life. And yet, what makes the serious fiction differ from the trivial fiction is not their fictitiousness. They're both fictitious. They're both made up. But one seems to have another use than the use that the other has. And why can't we, if we allow something which is fictitious but deep, valuable, worthy perhaps of the Nobel Prize to be honored, why couldn't we do the same small favor for fictions that have been honored in a rather similar way within the world's religious traditions? 
You know, I've been asking about how people value or don't value religion. You know, they may value it as allegory or as practice or as a way to live. And someone may look at somebody living a religious life and see that their life is good. And that itself is sort of the proof of the pudding. But I'm wondering, another way that it was valued or not valued was whether or not a text was original or old. Mm-hmm. For instance, the Christian texts, uh, trying to separate out what came later. Why was there this valuation on a text's origins over how it developed over time? It's not just the Christians that did this in the Norton Anthology of Taoism. The Taoism editor, James Robson, spends quite a bit of time talking about the contention back and forth between Taoists and Buddhists in China. The Taoists saying that Buddha studied from Laozi and, and the Buddhists saying that Laozi studied under Buddha. It mattered who came first. In my book, uh, God in the Quran, I say that Jews and Christians say of Islam what Jews always said of Christianity What's good is not new, and what's new is not true. So the thought then that uh, the further back you go, perhaps the nearer you get to some uh, other than human source, something superhuman, if not divine, then you know, uh, inspired in some miraculous and scarcely repeatable way. That's as close as I can come to this sense that uh, older is better. But I think there is something also mysteriously psychological in there that uh, we tend after a while to uh, bathe our pasts in a kind of golden glow. What's that Barbara Streisand song? The way we were, you know? Was it all so beautiful then or has time rewritten every line? You know, there's something there that seems to me to to transcend religion and, and other aspects. You know, I'm sure you're aware that among Buddhists, even today, they can talk about the early texts and understand later texts as corruptions. This isn't as common, perhaps, among scholars, but among practitioners, you know, you have the Theravada Mahayana split. And so what the Buddha really taught is here, but these other texts are yes. corrupt or they're they're like uh, backsliding into essentialism, this sort of thing. Yes. And of course, that if you regard religion as ultimately the mystery being spoken about by humans rather than the mystery speaking about humans to them, you know, then, then the creativity can never be shut off and the later may be beautiful. It may have conferred upon what came earlier a strength that allowed it to survive. In a way, to live and grow is to change. We recognize that in our, our own individual lives. It seems to me only reasonable to expect that the collective life of a religious tradition will also be able to grow and change as time passes and also as, as circumstances change. And one way that circumstances change, of course, is if a group of people migrates to a new place and encounters other people. You know, Donald S. Lopez Jr., who is the Buddhism editor, regards Buddhism as a family of religions, and they are distinct. And for a long time, the Buddhists of the world in their respective national communities scarcely knew that Buddhism was alive in other countries. They were living quite happily, uh, just as Korean Buddhism, as uh, Mongolian Buddhism, what have you. And he thinks that Western Buddhism is legitimate, but really quite distinct as a new variant and an old theme. 
that's a variant that uh, only could have come into being after Buddhists began to move into Western cultures that previously hadn't had any contact with it. You know, this is a little bit of an aside. As the editor of a Buddhist magazine, it's not uncommon for me to listen to people argue about whether Buddhism is indeed a religion. In fact, this discussion broke out on the board. I tend to think it's a religion, but could you comment on that and why that question at all? Yes, well, in my little book, and it is little, called Religion as We Know It, an origin story, I talk at the very beginning about having participated uh, for years as a scholar of religion, originally a, a scholar of Hebrew scriptures, in conversations in, in which at some point could be a Buddhist, could be a Hindu, could be a Muslim, often would be a Jew, would say religion X is not a religion in your understanding of the word, or it's not a religion in the standard understanding of the word. Now, who is it who made this standard understanding? And that's how I was led back to this reflection upon how Christianity began to create religion as something separate. And once you're operating in the West, where the commons unreflective a priori assumption is that all religions, whatever they call themselves, are really somewhat separate from the rest of the secular society that we all live in, and where, by the way, many of our fellow citizens are deeply attached to having secularity as something that can keep religion at more than arm's length, you're going to be something like a religion whether you like it or not. And at the same time, when you see that you're being cornered that way, you can at least privately begin to put in qualifications and begin to uh, allow perhaps another common sense little by little to develop. And I, I wouldn't have any objection to that if that happened. If that happens, it happens. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. You mentioned an origin story. It's the part of the title I didn't ask about. So why don't you tell me why you called it an origin story? Remember, it is the origin of religion, not in itself, but religion as we know it. So it is the origin of how we use the word religion. Now, where did all of this huge array of practices from the most primitive to the most refined and intellectually subtle, the most artistically accomplished, where did they all originally come from? Well, that carries us back into the history of the human species. It carries us back way, way before writing was invented, where there were any kind of religious texts to be anthologized. And it's obviously very difficult, if it's going to ever be possible at all, to go that far back and ask from what in the human species, religion, never mind how we talk about it, anything remotely connected with it could have originated. I have my own personal guess, which is that the beginnings of religion arrive with the beginning of true human knowing. And I maintain that you don't know that you know anything until you begin to know that you don't know something. You have to know the difference between knowing and not knowing. And once you really do that, the world of things that you don't know is just so huge, so overwhelming. And it's at that point, I think, that the mind begins to make huge leaps uh, just to be able to live a real life in the presence of a universe so vast and so unknowable. 
you know, I'm a great reader of popular science and multiverse theories and God particles and all the rest. And it just doesn't seem to me that we're really closing in on final knowledge. I believe in all sincerity, though it's a guess, that the human species will go extinct before it answers the ultimate questions. So in a way, I think you allude to this, or you may say it outright, religion is a way to navigate unknowing. Correct. Or our own ignorance. I do, yes. Do you mind if I, since you included such a personal essay in the first edition of the Norton Anthology, I believe in later editions, you asked that it be removed. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, one of the five editors, the compromise was that you'd put it in the first edition and then take it out after that. Is that right? Yes. So the the anthology was published in two huge volumes of more than 2,000 pages each, and the two volumes appeared as a boxed set. And to that great anthology, I wrote an overall introduction that ended with this personal essay. And five of my associate editors approved my doing that. One did not. But then when the, the two huge volumes were divided into six smaller paperback volumes, each of them had its own introduction by the associate editor in charge. So the Judaism editor had already, for the original edition, written an introduction to Judaism, the Buddhism editor comparably, and so forth. So I didn't want to have uh, dueling introductions within the six volumes, so I just deleted my the personal part at that point. Well, I'm glad it's in the first edition because I was really taken with it. You're listening to James Shaheen in conversation with Jack Miles on Tricycle Talks, a podcast from Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. For 30 years, Tricycle has been dedicated to making Buddhist teachings and practices available to everyone. We do this through our print and digital magazine, our monthly screenings of spiritual films, weekly Dharma Talk videos, a Buddhism for Beginners educational microsite, an ebook library and a variety of online courses with expert teachers. If you're interested in learning more, sign up for a four-week free trial at tricycle.org slash subscribe. Now, let's return to James Shaheen in conversation with Jack Miles, author of Religion As We Know It, an origin story. So if you don't mind, I'll ask about your personal life. Um, I'd like to start with your becoming a Jesuit at age 20. Is that right? Age 20? Age 18. Age 18 is when you went in. I think there were two years as a novice, and then you became a Jesuit at 20. It's amazing. At 18, passions run so high, and people are just beginning to go out into the world and finding who they are, what they like, having relationships, having sex. How is it that you became a Jesuit? Well, I was anxious to do all those typical pursuits of uh, young American men at that time. I would say I was also terrified by the same things that I desired. And the joining the Jesuits was pulling a giant lever that solved all other questions at once. So that was a kind of subconscious psychological move on my part. And 10 years later, now with greater confidence, much wider experience of the world, having traveled quite a bit, actually, and 
I think I had greater confidence in my ability to sort of face the world independently. But at the same time, I admired the Jesuits. Uh, they had taught me in high school. I found the esprit de corps of the order very romantic and exciting. I come from a lower working class background, and these men were the most educated men I had ever met. And they were also citizens of the world. And all that, plus their idealism, they were very kind and giving. They lived very simply. They gave much and asked little in return. That appealed, you might say, to a young man's desire to to do something to save the world, and the kind of nobility uh, about it. Everyone in the Jesuit high school that I attended had to make a religious retreat as a senior. And the theme of the retreat that I went on was a saying of one of the Jesuit saints, quid hoc ad eternitatem, what is this to eternity? <laughs> what kind of answer can anybody give to that? What is what to eternity? <laughs> right. It's unanswerable, uh, but there was something um, thrilling about it. Uh, partly, I think if it had been said in English, I wouldn't have worked as well. You know, had to be said in Latin. I think in the same way later, years later, if I hadn't read uh, Camus in, uh, in French, he wouldn't have touched me as deeply. I'm, I'm very susceptible to uh, linguistic art. So that's how I got started. So 10 years later, having seen so much of the world and along the way, so much of other religions, I lived in Israel for a year, for example. Without any anger with Catholicism or with the, the Jesuits, I no longer saw that this choice quite commanded my life's allegiance. And so I asked to be released from my vows. That, that's how uh, classically it is done. You don't quit the Jesuits. You ask them to fire you, but they always will, because it's not a commitment that anybody can be forced into. If you don't make it willingly, you'll be a bad Jesuit. So I asked to be fired, and they fired me. So after that, you sort of disburdened yourself of a sense of responsibility to community or to the world by sort of taking on the beliefs or non-beliefs of the existentialists, is that right? Well, it was a 10-year period before I would say I somewhat settled down. But um, immediately upon leaving the Jesuits, I was looking for, I think, a kind of secular equivalent. And my cause was defeating Richard Nixon and ending the war in Vietnam. And so I threw myself wholeheartedly into the McGovern campaign. McGovern lost. I was plunged into despair. And around that time, I read uh, Bertrand Russell's essay, Why I Am Not a Christian. And he said that only on the foundation of despair could the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. So I said, fine, despair is my new ground position. I hadn't read Schopenhauer at that time, but it seemed like a new option to me. Um, but then after a while, I strange to say, but I got bored with despair. It seemed to have uh, run its course with me. And I began then to think that some of the religious options that I had left behind were worthy of a second consideration. And that although McGovern had lost and Nixon had won, and Nixon had then been forced out of office, America was still here. Political parties were still here. They still needed me. So I found my way really back into a concern with public life, and with an interest in religion at the same time. Initially, I was quite uh, interested in, in meditation. I had a meditation coach who was, well, he was an American, but his grounding, I think, was in Hinduism. But theoretically, I was more taken with, uh, with Buddhism. 
But I think because I was at an early stage of thinking about how de facto religions are embedded in cultures, I thought that Buddhism was properly embedded in other cultures than my American culture, and that I had been so deeply shaped by my upbringing in the Catholic Church and then my my decade as a Jesuit that I would be a very awkward and clumsy kind of Buddhist, and that it would be more appropriate for me to be a Christian with Buddhist tendencies than a Buddhist with the inevitable Christian tendencies that I would never be able to shake anyway. So that was my path back from despair, you might say. I've given you more answer than you needed. (laughs) No, no, that's great. You know, I was wondering, and this may not apply at all. That's why I'm asking you. uh, When I was reading about your story, I was thinking of Paul Ricoeur's second naivete. And I wonder if that kind of factored into your your immersion with the Jesuits, you are leaving and you're coming back with a different understanding, maybe sort of the faith of an adult, or I don't know how I would describe that, but is that at all operative? Yes, it is. And uh, over time, that has become more and more clearly uh, into focus. Paul's recurs phrase, second naivete is a good one. Another phrase is disenchantment with disenchantment which is a phrase of theologian David Tracy. And I close my concluding unscholarly postscript to the Norton Anthology with a quote from Herbert Fingeret. He's deceased now, but he was a modern analytic philosopher. He was went deep into psychoanalysis and also uh, deep into the study of Confucianism. And uh, he said that, I don't have the words in front of me right now, but Our inescapable situation as modern humans in a globalized world is that we have choices to make. And the only way your choice can really be effective for you is if you give it your whole assent in a kind of childlike way. You have to take fairy tale as real and enjoy it and thrill to it and sing along, you might say, even as you know that that it is it's not scientifically true, and even as play, even as uh, something to sing along to, it's not the song that everyone is going to want to sing. And in fact, you yourself could sing a different song. You have to know all that, and yet you have to go forward on a path that you've chosen. I have friends who study art, you know, of a particular period, and who never go to an art gallery. They're not interested in contemporary art. Right. <laughs> I, and I think that's a path to, to a kind of impoverishment, that there is something wonderful uh, to be gained by allowing yourself to make choices that are for you and for this place and for this time. There's something playful about it. And at the end of his enormous monumental religion and human evolution, Robert Bella comes around to play as the most basic source of all human creativity, and including the path of human creativity that gives us religion. And I share that view. And so to the extent that I can, I don't think anybody would consider me the world's most playful person, you know. <laughs> but I try to be as playful as I can. And I think I'm a better man for trying. You know, you mentioned Robert Bella. He wrote a piece for us, and we called it the R word. And in part, it was about how both fundamentalists and atheists in their emphasis on literal truth got it wrong. And you talk about acting as if. Could you say something about that? Yes. Well, you know, you act 
as if all men are created equal, whenever uh, you participate in anything even remotely connected with a Black Lives Matter demonstration, if such things speak strongly to you, then you are engaging in that kind of behavior. And when you do that, if you imagine that the effort is entirely uh, wasted unless it brings a final desired concrete result, then you might as well despair because you never will succeed completely. But if you engage in it more playfully, even when it's very serious, if you can engage in it playfully, you will care for yourself and, and maintain your own strength and your own spirits as you go. So to try to be lighthearted about the most serious matters is a deep wisdom and a very hard wisdom to cultivate, you know, because in a way it can't be cultivated. You have to yield to it. You know, you have to get the joke. You have to play along, as we say. Right. Whether people acknowledge it or not, isn't it fair to say we all live with fictions? It's really not possible otherwise. Absolutely. You know, and, you know, that's true, you know, about choices that we make in our, uh, our private life all the time. Right. No one makes an entirely rational decision to marry. No one ever made an entirely rational decision to divorce. You think things over. You think you're thinking. You're thinking, you're feeling, you're playing, you're trying things on. Uh, you're acting things out. You know, you're rehearsing things. Uh, you're entertaining fantasies. All of those things go into our most uh, basic life decisions. You know, you mentioned briefly the darker side of religion. How are we to understand that? I mean, so many, there have been so many religious wars and also secular wars, of course, but religious wars seem to take on a very particular character. It seems that belief always comes to the fore and a kind of fanaticism. And, and then no religion seems exempt. You have the Buddhists in Burma and Sri Lanka, and you know people have the impression sometimes that Buddhists don't have this in their nature too. Yeah. Um, so what do you have to say about that? Because a lot of people criticize religion precisely for those reasons. It's a crucial question and an unavoidable question, but not an easy question to answer. At the moment when you might want to single out religion as the root of all violence, the root of all evil, you come rushing up against, as you say, the examples of, of wars that are fought by competing atheist powers. I think the wars that are fought for some recognized, limited, empirical interest tend to come to a conclusion when those limited interests are better met by not fighting than by fighting. It's when the conflict is rooted in something that goes beyond anybody's actual measurable self-interest that it becomes a war that can never seem to come to an end. I fear at the moment in, in our country that if we have a contested election, if we have a protracted period like 2000 in Florida multiplied many times over, if Trump claims that he has been reelected, millions and millions of Americans will not be able to believe him because they fear what the consequences of being ruled by him and his followers. And similarly, if Democrats and Joseph Biden claim that they are the victors, the other side will also be unable to accept the result because of their fear of an all or a nothing defeat with themselves on the nothing side. 
you can reach this point uh, without religion's involvement, but because religion introduces uh, these non-empirical, intangible aspects to which people can become profoundly attached, its potential for abuse is undoubtedly very great. Similarly great is uh, nationalism when it becomes something sacred, something holy, when it's the supreme value. I am an American first, last, and always. I would give my life for my country. That's an attitude that makes religion as far away from concrete empirical interest as, as any Christian war of religion, you know, in the 17th century. Right. So I want to ask you another question that you ask in the book. How religious do you have to be to study religion? Or do you need to be religious at all? And why are we asking that question? In effect, what I say is you need to be a little bit interested in the subject. You need to be a little bit open to the subject. You can't study any subject if you're sure in advance that you know absolutely everything there is to know about this subject. And, you know, having written several books, now three books, a trilogy of books about God, I would say for every time that anyone has come to me with a question, like you with a dozen questions or more here today, James, <laughs> I must have <laughs> had 20 people come, come to me, uh, you know, with answers. They had everything worked out and they wanted to make sure that I got the real answer from them. Many more answers than questions if you uh, dare to make a public appearance talking about religion. So your interest in the subject cannot be simply an interest in imposing the answer you have already worked out on other people. There has to be a degree of curiosity. Wilfred Cantwell Smith, I quote him as something like, religion is not a body of knowledge to be imparted, but an area of, of learning to be cultivated. He says it much better than that. I wish I had the book in front of me. But if you regard it as as something worth looking into, because we don't yet understand it, and there are things to be learned about it, then you can have the fascination of study. And then, too, there are times when your openness can have an existential element to it. Suppose you regard religion as one domain, family is another domain, art, science, sports, warfare even. Suppose you're an army man, and they haven't given you everything you want you think there must be something more, there must be something else. That's another kind of curiosity. That isn't uh, simply the curiosity of someone who thinks this is fascinating, I'd like to look into it in a detached way as a student. That's legitimate. You can do that. It's good. But uh, you can also have something a little more earnest, a little more uh, from the heart, uh, you know, and perhaps a little more anxious. That is another kind of starting place. I quote the poet Todd Boss, the door has to be ajar. It has to be ajar a little bit, not closed. It doesn't have to be wide open. It just has to be open a little bit. That gets you started. Then you go as far as you want to go. One of the things, Jack, that I ask myself is that the separability of religion, the way it developed in the West, the way Christianity developed, mm-hmm. that was this separate domain of human activity that you could study, mm-hmm. in many ways allowed us to discover things we might not have otherwise discovered. But what is the liability? What is the downside of seeing religion in that way? Well, the upside to talk about that first is that uh, when it is a separate domain and there are several varieties of it, uh, you've come that far that you know at least that, it gives you a certain detachment. And so the stakes can go down 
and you can study uh, a religion that is not your own, or if you have no religion that you're aware of, have never had any truck with such subject matter, you can start to look into it without feeling that you're stuck with anything. You know, it gives you the cool demeanor of a scientist or a scholar. But the downside is that um, detachment can kill. Let's suppose that uh, you are a child psychologist and uh, you, you look objectively uh, on children and their growth. But you also have children of your own. And if you begin to consider them only as objects of study, you're not going to be a very good mommy or daddy, you know, are you? And you yourself are going to deprive yourself of certain deeply enriching and rewarding experiences that would only be yours if you abandoned that uh, stance of, of detachment. So there are gains and there are losses. Sometimes I think even within the comparison that I just offered, it might not be a bad idea to compare your kid with some other kid, you know, and see maybe you, or with some other parent. I recall a, <laughs> I recall a New Yorker cartoon, an angry parent confronts a first grade teacher. What do you mean? Where do you get off saying that my child is performing at grade level? <laughs> What's wrong with performing at grade level? You know, Abraham Lincoln said, uh, God must love ordinary looking people. Look how many of them he made, you know. So to somehow get off the particular train that you're on as a parent in your own family and look at how parenting is done in another family can be helpful. But then finally, you have to come home and be the parent that you are, if you're a parent. That's just one kind of comparison. I've been reading a book about uh, the composer Arnold Schoenberg, and um, he was Jewish, once was entranced with, uh, with Wagner, uh, really not just a Wagnerian, but a Wagnerist, you know. He turned it into a, 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 his way of being German. And then he had to leave that behind. So the struggle between the part of you that wants to be detached and the part of you that really wants to be attached is an ongoing struggle. And there are gains from detachment and there are gains uh, from detachment. You know, I don't get to ask religion scholars about their practice, so you're the only one so far that I get to ask. Is that um, a fact? <laughs> that's a fact. Well, maybe I've asked a few, but I've never gotten very satisfactory answers. Well, maybe Bob Thurman. He certainly talks about it. But what I wanted to ask you about is something that you wrote that I found very moving, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. So you don't look to religion for closure, and you describe one experience rather as an opening. I found that very elucidating. Yes. I think that, uh, for me, the supreme example of this strikes me as the, the hunger for that people have for closure and finality and the end of questioning when it comes to death. They don't want the death question to be open. They want it we all want it in a way to be resolved. So either I know what to expect or I know that I should expect nothing. I want to know for sure that there's an afterlife and that I will be able to meet my dead grandmother in heaven, or I want to know that my ashes will be scattered to the wind and that will be totally and finally the end of me. But the only way we understand death is as the deprivation of life. 
we don't really understand life in the material sense until we understand exactly what matter is. But that involves understanding also what antimatter is, what energy is, and what dark energy is. It carries us back into the origin of the universe and then to the possibility that there is more than one universe. And uh, since we do not know what life is, we cannot know what the deprivation of life is. We cannot know whether when we think we are thinking only with our brains or also with the rest of our bodies, and whether when we even think with the mind and the body as one, whether we aren't really thinking as part of the human species in the way that a bee lives as part of a hive, and you never see a single bee. You only A single bee is, by definition, almost a dead bee. A, a bee to live has to be a, a member of a hive. So uh, in this way, if you can maintain a kind of faith in your own inability to reach answers about even the most basic questions, and if religion can sometimes be for you an invitation to stand in the presence of mystery, it can enable you to maintain openness and escape closure. And there are those, as I say, millions, millions of them who want closure more than anything else. But there are at least some, I think, who find that closure is itself a kind of death and that maintaining openness right down to the moment of death is, uh, is a kind of salvation, I could even use the word. A friend of mine much, much more deeply learned in the literatures of the West than I introduced me to the final words of Rabelais. Rabelais, the French writer, you know, known for his body sense of humor, a playful man if ever there was one. And what he said on his deathbed was, Je pars pour le grand peut-être. I leave for the great perhaps. I'd like perhaps, you know, perhaps to be the word I speak at the end of my life. Okay, with that, I think... Uh, we can wrap up. And Jack Miles, thank you so much for joining us. That was truly a wonderful conversation. James, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to Jack Miles, author of Religion as We Know It, an origin story, here on Tricycle Talks. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.